You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to the Film Literature in the New World Order podcast for the month of May 2016. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and this month, as promised last month, we're going to be examining Upton Sinclair's 1906 expose of the Chicago stockyards in particular, and the early 20th century American meatpacking industry in general, The Jungle. Now, I'm fairly sure that this is a book that most people will at least have some passing familiarity with, at least in its broad outline, because it has entered into the cultural zeitgeist because of a series of events that in many ways is what this film literature in the New World Order podcast is constantly circling around and coming back to, which is the ways that fiction, uh, quote-unquote fiction, can influence the world. And often we're looking at subtle effects and we're looking at propaganda and indoctrination and brainwashing and how that can influence certain things. But in this case, it's a very clear-cut case. The book was published in 1906, and later that year there were already there was already legislation that was being passed uh, to, re- to counter the, the reaction, the, the horror and outrage that had been caused by this publication. So, just to make sure that everybody's on board and understands what we're talking about, first, let's examine a few of the passages that caused such incredible horror amongst much of the public that caused the outcry, that caused the government to react with legislation. And we're talking, again, about Upton Sinclair's really quite grisly, no-holds-barred portrayal of the conditions, the working conditions, at the meatpacking plants back at the turn of the century. Jurgis heard of these things little by little, in the gossip of those who were obliged to perpetrate them. It seemed as if every time you met a person from a new department you heard of new swindles and new crimes. There was, for instance, a Lithuanian who was a cattle butcher for the plant where Maria had worked, which killed meat for canning only, and to hear this man describe the animals which came to his place would have been worthwhile for a Dante or a Zola. It seemed that they must have agencies all over the country to hunt out old and crippled and diseased cattle to be canned. There were cattle which had been fed on whiskey malt, the refuse of the breweries, and had become what the men called steerly, which means covered with boils. It was a nasty job killing these, for when you plunged your knife into them they would burst and splash foul-smelling stuff into your face and when a man's sleeves were smeared with blood and his hands steeped in it, how was he ever to wipe his face or to clear his eyes so that he could see? It was stuff such as this that made the embalmed beef that had killed several times as many United States soldiers as all the bullets of the Spaniards. Only the army beef, besides, was not fresh canned. It was old stuff that had been lying for years in the cellars. Then, one Sunday evening, Jurgis sat puffing his pipe by the kitchen stove and talking with an old fellow whom Jonas had introduced and who worked in the canning rooms at Durham's, and so Jurgis learned a few things about the great and only Durham canned goods, which had become a national institution. They were regular alchemists at Durham's. They advertised a mushroom ketchup and the men who made it did not know what a mushroom looked like. 
They advertised potted chicken, and it was like the boarding-house soup of the comic papers through which a chicken had walked with rubbers on. Perhaps they had a secret process for making chickens chemically. Who knows? said Jurgis' friend. The things that went into the mixture were tripe, and the fat of pork, and beef suet, and hearts of beef, and finally the waste ends of veal, when they had any. They put these up in several grades, and sold them at several prices, but the contents of the cans all came out of the same hopper. And then there was potted game, and potted grouse, potted ham, and deviled ham, deviled, as the men called it. Deviled ham was made out of the waste ends of smoked beef that were too small to be sliced by the machines, and also tripe, dyed with chemicals, so that it would not show white, and trimmings of hams and corned beef, and potatoes, skins and all, and finally the hard cartilaginous gullets of beef, after the tongues had been cut out. All this ingenious mixture was ground up and flavored with spices to make it taste like something. Anybody who could invent a new imitation had been sure of a fortune from old Durham, said Jurgis' informant but it was hard to think of anything new in a place where so many sharp wits had been at work for so long, where men welcomed tuberculosis in the cattle they were feeding because it made them fatten more quickly, and where they bought up all the old rancid butter left over in the grocery stores of a continent and oxidized it by a forced air process to take away the odor, rechurned it with skim milk, and sold it in bricks in the cities. Up to a year or two ago it had been the custom to kill horses in the yards, ostensibly for fertilizer, but after long agitation the newspapers had been able to make the public realize that the horses were being canned. Now it was against the law to kill horses in Packingtown, and the law was really complied with, for the present at any rate. Any day, however, one might see sharp-horned and shaggy-haired creatures running with the sheep, and yet what a job you would have to get the public to believe that a good part of what it buys for lamb and mutton is really goat's flesh. A grisly reality, I'm sure you'll agree, and one that offended the sensibilities of pretty much everyone who read these passages back at the time that the book was published, and it's interesting to note that although these types of passages only make up a tiny fraction of the book as a whole, they were the passages that were intensely focused on by an outraged and affronted public, and a public that increasingly clamored for something to be done about these horrible conditions, because they understood that this book was not merely a work of fiction. It was also a journalistic work of a sort by someone who was in the vein of the muckraking journalists of the early 20th century. And the muckrakers of the progressive era, well, at least some of them, or at least one of them, should be familiar to my regular listeners. Ida Tarbell, of course, published the famous, the infamous expose of David Rockefeller, I'm sorry, <laughs> John D. Rockefeller and the uh, Standard Oil Monopoly. So that was the vein in which Sinclair was working, so, and people did realize that this did come from some, some type of personal experience that Sinclair had uh, garnered 
in his actual several weeks of working in the stockyards in preparation for the writing of this book. So more information about the history of the publication of the book can be found in a number of places, but we'll take this from Spartacus Schoolnet, where it says, quote, The work of Frank Norris was especially important to the development of Sinclair as a writer. He later spoke about how Norris had showed me a new world, and he also showed me that it could be put in a novel. Sinclair was also influenced by the investigative journalism of Benjamin Flower, Ida Tarbell, Lincoln Steffens, and Ray Stannard Baker. It was this work that inspired him to write a series of articles on labor conditions in the meatpacking industry for the socialist newspaper Appeal. In April 1905, Collier's Weekly published another of Sinclair's articles on the subject, Is Chicago Meat Clean? This material provided the raw material for his next novel, The Jungle. Sinclair had his novel rejected by six publishers. A consultant at Macmillan wrote, I advise without hesitation and unreservedly against the publication of this book, which is gloom and horror unrelieved. One feels that what is at the bottom of his fierceness is not nearly so much desire to help the poor as hatred of the rich. Sinclair decided to publish the book himself, and after advertising his intentions in the appeal, he, he got orders for 972 copies. When he told Doubleday of these orders, it decided to publish the book. The Jungle, published in 1906, was an immediate success, selling over 150,000 copies. Within the next few years, The Jungle had been published in 17 languages and was a bestseller all over the world. And the rest, as they say, is history. Mainline history. Theodore Roosevelt often spoke of fighting a war against the evils of the day. During his presidency... Roosevelt was very active in arguing for laws and policies to benefit public health. After reading Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which documented the terrible conditions of the meatpacking industry, Roosevelt invited the author to the White House. During a meeting with Sinclair, Roosevelt promised to use federal regulations to clean up the sickening conditions inside meatpacking plants. Roosevelt was not the only one disgusted by what he read in Sinclair's novel. Upon the release of the book, there was large-scale public outcry for government intervention. Roosevelt responded by appointing a commission to investigate. The commission reported back, and their findings confirmed most of Sinclair's accounts. Armed with the mandate from the American people and the information included in the report, Roosevelt pushed for the Meat Inspection Act to be passed by Congress. The bill called for stricter sanitary requirements for meat packers, as well as a government program to carry out inspections of the plants. The government had to pay for the inspections, but packers were required to label canned goods with information that included the date the food was processed. Roosevelt also sought changes in other food areas, as well as drug manufacturing. Both remain largely unregulated, and many manufacturers were adding dangerous preservatives to food in order to extend its shelf life. Across the country, drug manufacturers sold medications in boxes and containers which claimed to cure cancer, baldness, and a wide variety of other conditions and ailments. The large variety of items sold in drugstores and from suitcases of traveling salesmen did not have to be labeled. 
Anyone who purchased one of these products had no way of knowing what the contents of the medication were. Many popular children's medicines of the day contained alcohol, cocaine, and even heroin. The exploitation of the American people by these snake oil salesmen enraged Roosevelt, and he vowed to use the power of his office to put a stop to it. With Roosevelt's encouragement, Congress responded with the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act. The law put a halt to the sale of contaminated medicines and food. While it did not ban the sale of harmful products, it required a list of active ingredients to be placed on packaging labels and that drugs could not fall below a purity level that had been established by the government. The Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act were key pieces of progressive era legislation. They were the first in a series of important consumer protection laws which eventually led to the creation of the Food and Drug Administration. Both acts were signed into law by President Theodore Roosevelt on June the 30th, 1906. So there you have it, folks. The Jungle, this 1906 novel by Upton Sinclair, was the direct cause of the passage of the Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, the former of which came under the purview of the U.S. uh, Department of Agriculture, and the latter of which actually established the Bureau of Chemistry, as it was known at the time, later to become the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And as we all know, once the age of these large government bureaucracies that are meant to regulate industry came into play and we got the FDA and the USDA and the EPA and all of these various agencies, the FCC and others, regulating industry, we've had nothing but sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops raining down on the population of not only America, but the world as a whole. Horse meat found in yet more frozen dinners, and we'll grab this from naturalnews.com. A shocking food ingredient scandal that was first brought to light in Ireland back in January is now spreading across Europe as major food suppliers continue to be exposed for selling food products tainted with horse meat. That a former Monsanto scientist should find himself in charge of a specially created post at the very journal that published two landmark studies questioning the safety of that company's products should surprise no one who is aware of the Monsanto revolving door. This door is responsible for literally dozens of Monsanto officials, lobbyists, and consultants finding themselves in positions of authority in the government bodies that are supposedly there to regulate the company and its actions. This list of officials includes Linda Fisher, a senior EPA official who later became Monsanto's VP of Government and Public Affairs, Michael Taylor, Obama's deputy FDA commissioner who also served as Monsanto's VP for Public Policy, and U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who served as a corporate lawyer for Monsanto in the 1970s. These positions of influence have been used to help Monsanto and its biotech peers obtain an FDA ruling which asserts that GMO foods are not substantially different from non-modified foods, win approval for their products from regulators by self-sponsoring studies with almost identical methodologies to the Seralini study that was just retracted, and pass favorable legislation like the Monsanto Protection Act, preventing the company from being taken to federal court in the event that GMOs are discovered to be harmful to human health. Beginning in 2000, financial fraud investigator Harry Markopoulos began alerting the SEC that Bernie Madoff's wealth management business was in fact a Ponzi scheme, but he was ignored by the commission. Over the next eight and a half years, his continued efforts to blow the whistle were repeatedly dismissed by the SEC. 
As Markopoulos himself testified in 2009 over the Madoff scandal, he gift-wrapped and delivered the largest Ponzi scheme in history to the SEC, but they did nothing whatsoever to stop it. After it came to light, it was revealed that Madoff's niece had married one of the SEC compliance officials who had found no problems at the firm in 2005. Okay, maybe not. So what's the real story of the jungle? If the story is not this mainline statist high school textbook history propaganda about a man exposing all of these evils in a novel, causing public outrage, causing the passage of these this legislation, causing the benevolent government to kick into action and everything to be mostly better uh, ever after. What is the real story here? And I think we have to at least take a look at some of the facts that complicate that narrative that we're being presented with. Firstly, although uh, as, for example, that YouTube clip that we listened to earlier talked about the way that Roosevelt, President Roosevelt himself read the book and was so incensed that he started the, the gears in motion to make sure that these acts got passed. Uh, well, actually, Roosevelt himself, secretly at least, uh, confided to his friends that he thought Sinclair was a crackpot and a liar. In fact, you can even get this from Wikipedia, which notes that uh, he, uh, Roosevelt, wrote privately to William Allen White, I have an utter contempt for him. Uh, Sinclair. He is hysterical, unbalanced, and untruthful. Three-fourths of the things he said were absolute falsehoods, and for some of the remainder, there was only a basis of truth. Well, <laughs> Roosevelt should know, because he was the man who appointed the two people to uh, to go on a fact-finding mission for U.S. Congress to, f uh, to report to Congress about the state of the meatpacking facilities, uh, to find out about the Chicago stockyards in person. And the men he assigned were a labor commissioner and a social worker who had absolutely no knowledge of or experience in meatpacking or anything remotely connected to livestock or agriculture. They ended up delivering an oral report to Roosevelt that was then made into a slipshod uh, uh, rambly uh, report that was quite haphazard that they did not release for publication to the public, but gave directly to Congress, who then basically used that as the impetus for the Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act. And some background on this can be gained from a book called Excuse Me, Professor, Challenging the Myths of Pro Progressivism, which is edit edited by Lawrence W. Reed and has an entire chapter that I highly recommend on Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Um, but let's just read about that fact-finding uh, mission by these uh, the two uh, presidential appointees, Neil and Reynolds. Um, in this book, it uh, it's, it's quoted as, it turns out that neither Neil nor Reynolds had any experience in the meatpacking business and spent a grand total of two and a half weeks in the spring of 1906 investigating and preparing what turned out to be a care carelessly written report with predetermined conclusions. Gabriel Kalko, a socialist, but nonetheless a historian with respect for facts, dismisses Sinclair as a propagandist and assails Neil and Reynolds as two inexperienced Washington bureaucrats who freely admitted they knew nothing of the meatpacking process. Their own subsequent testimony revealed that they had gone to Chicago with the intention of finding fault with industry practices so as to get a new inspection law passed. So, no surprise there. Like the 9-11 Commission or any other number of uh, com uh, presidentially appointed uh, commissions in U.S. history, this one was basically written in advance and they just went in there to cross a few T's and dot a few I's, but it was all a formality at that point. So, 
We know that that was a self-evident sham. But what, what did the relevant government inspectors and agencies think of Sinclair's allegations? Well, let's turn to uh, Libertarian News, which had uh, an article, Meatpackers Rape You and You Love It, talking about these very issues that noted that a 1906 report by the Bureau of Animal Industry, i.e. the actual relevant government uh, 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 agency that would be looking into this, refuted Sinclair's severest allegations, characterizing them as intentionally misleading and false, willful and deliberate misrepresentations of fact, and utter absurdity. Well, what did Sinclair himself think of the new regulations regime that his book had inspired with the Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act? He hated this legislation. He thought that the new mandated inspections regime, which, of course, was going to be paid for by the taxpayers themselves, was actually a boon to the big meat packers. And you know what? He was absolutely right about that. So let's take a look at some of the history that contextualizes the Meat Inspection Act of 1906, which was not the first government regulations regarding the meatpacking industry. Um, we can take this from a, a, a pretty comprehensive article on meatpacking in the <laughs> Mises.org wiki, uh, which I'll link you to, which uh, talks about many of the different aspects of what was raised by Sinclair's The Jungle, but one of them is the, the myth that there was no regulation before Sinclair came, came along. Uh, it says in its passage on uh, unregulated industry, quote, the meatpacking industry was not unregulated. At the time Sinclair's book came out, it had been inspected for more than a decade. Congressman E.D. Crumpacker of Indiana noted in testimony before the House Agriculture Committee in June 1906 that not even one of those officials ever registered any complaint or gave any public information with respect to the manner of slaughtering or preparation of meat or food products. So what is the history of federal meat inspection? In 1891, the Meat Inspection Act of 1891 was passed under allegations of contaminated meat. There is no evidence, however, that tainted meat was actually a realistic reason for the adoption of the meat regulation. Gary Leibcap concludes that the record does not indicate that the, indic the incidence of diseased cattle or their consumption was very great, and there is no evidence of a major health issue at that time over beef consumption. Why then was the regulation passed? Ernest Passour explains, quote, There is a great deal of evidence that the political impetus for the 1891 legislation was the consequence of rapidly changing economic conditions. Market dominance by Chicago meatpackers, primarily Swift, Armour, Morris, and Hammond, quickly followed the introduction of refrigeration around 1880. Refrigeration allowed for centralized, large-scale, and lower-cost slaughterhouses because of production, distribution, and transportation advantages. The four large Chicago firms accounted for about 90% of the cattle slaughtered in Chicago within a decade after the introduction of refrigeration. The Chicago Packers fundamentally changed demand and supply conditions in the meatpacking industry. Small, local slaughterhouses throughout the country were rapidly displaced because they could not compete with the lower-cost Chicago Packers. Local slaughter firms, in response, charged that Chicago pack Packers used diseased cattle and that their dressed beef was unsafe. The disease issue, as bogus as it apparently was, threatened both domestic demand and export markets for U.S. meat. Cattle raisers, especially those in the Midwest, backed federal meat inspection to promote demand. Cattle producers were also concerned about falling prices. Prices fell because the supply of cattle grew rapidly. 
but producers attributed the fall to their declining market power versus the Chicago Packers, a charge that seemed credible because of the Packers' size and concentration, ostensibly to deal with the largely spurious allegations of unsafe meat and collusion by the Chicago Packers, cattlemen and local Packers called for federal meat inspection and antitrust legislation. End quote. So, the idea here is that you have small business fighting with large corporations through the vehicle of government regulation for market share. This is an extremely important point because I think it goes to the very heart of what government regulation is always about, whether we're talking about the Securities and Exchange Commission or the FDA or the USDA or, or uh, any of these re- agencies that presume to regulate the, the, the industries that they're largely populated by. Uh, these are always just ways for large corporations to battle with small businesses over market share, and they are using the government as a vehicle for that battle. And this isn't difficult to see in practice even today. Uh, There was meat inspection laws and regulations before the jungle came along, and there have been meat inspection laws and regulations after the jungle came along, including the 1961 Wholesome Meat Act, which is the currently pertaining uh, relevant legislation here, which was recently discussed on an episode of the Tom Woods Show, where Tom and his guests were discussing the Wholesome Meat Act and how it is used basically as a bludgeon by the large corporations to strike down any small business would-be competitors. All right, we've got some fun stuff to talk about here. You know, anytime you talk about the safety of meat, people think back to the progressive era or they just they they think uh, thank goodness we have the government there or surely we would all die instantly and and all that. And the real truth of the matter is much more interesting and complicated. And it's less of a morality play. And and what I'd like to do is start off – there are two pieces of legislation we want to look at. One of them that was passed, uh, I guess, now nearly 50 years ago, and the other one, which is pending, which would modify the first one. So the first one I want to talk talk about today is the Wholesome Meat Act. It's an absolute classic – Law, a title of, of a uh, of a bill, right? I mean that no one could possibly oppose. What are you against wholesome meat? This is the Wholesome Meat Act of, of 1967. So let me ask you, John Moody, what are you against wholesome meat? What's wrong with you? Well, the problem with whenever government tries to achieve a good end through legislative means is they tend to destroy both the means and the end. And so you know, now sitting here, 50 years later. Um, I believe it was just last week, two and a half million pounds of poultry were recalled because of what um, the USDA or FDA called extraneous contamination, Um, meaning that when you bite your chicken nugget or you bite your other thing, I guess you could be getting like bits of plastic or bits of rock or who knows what. Um, And so, you know, when you think about things like this Wholesome Meat Act, that supposedly protect consumers um, from, you know, adulterated meats, adulterated foods, dangerous pathogens. In actuality, you know, the statistics and studies show that it's made our food supply less safe. It, it just it, it's done the opposite of what it intended. Yeah, and the thing is, it's not obvious why that would be because on the surface of it, it seems like the government passes a law and we're all safer. Why would that not be? Well, you know, it's with food especially. 
Um, you need to understand how the food system used to work and look and how legislation like this distorted the food system and now how it works. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us the whole scoop. All right. I want to know. You know, well, imagine you're a cow before the Wholesome Meat Act. So imagine you're a cow in 1960. Um, you could have been across tens of thousands of farms when you went to be butchered you could have been butchered at over 10,000 different locations. Um, you know, at that time, you probably would have been fed far less grain than cows are fed today. You would have lived at much lower stocking densities as a cow. Um, it wouldn't be like some cow frat house at a modern college where you're all, you know, crammed into this incredibly small space. Um, you know, you, you would have been spread out. You would have had distributed butchering. Um, there, you know, meat, meat in America used to be this highly diversified and competitive industry. Um, and so when you went to the supermarket or you went to your local butcher and you saw all these different labels for all these different products, they really represented actual consumer choice in the marketplace. And so after the Wholesome Meat Act, we went from having this highly diversified, incredibly competitive meat industry to now where roughly 80% of all meat in America is controlled by a handful of companies. So three to five companies control almost all the beef eaten in the nation. They control almost all the pork eaten in the nation. They control almost all the poultry eaten in the nation. And, and, and with that consolidation of control, you have consolidation of processing. So where a butcher used to handle a much smaller number of animals, thereby, you know, a limit, you know, Right now, when you get a hamburger from a restaurant, for instance, that meat in that hamburger could come from a thousand different cows that have been all ground together. If there was one sick cow or one sick employee or one improperly sanitized step in that process with all of those commingled cows, you now get the multi-million pound food safety recalls that we see as common in the American meat industry because the only way people could keep up with the meat regulations and all the additional costs they created was by consolidating to keep up and the consolidation made the meat supply less and less safe. Um, it, you know, it's just, it, it's astoundingly sad to see an action how badly this legislation has worked out for the American people and for the American farmer. Well, what would you say to the average person, though, who is concerned about meat safety and who would say, well, you got to try something. We have to do something to ensure meat safety. What else could be done to ensure meat safety other than this? Well, the first thing to realize is that meat wasn't unsafe before the Wholesome Meat Act. The, the Wholesome Meat Act was driven by the fictional writing of people like Upton Sinclair, who, whose original goal, you know, the, the thing he had in his sights wasn't even so much the meat industry as it was labor and other things. Um, and so the first thing to realize is, you know, if meat and raw milk and all these other foods were so unsafe, 
none of us would have ever gotten here in the first place. Um, we've been kind of indoctrinated into believing that before the government got involved in these industries, these industries were killing people left and right. And, and that does a great job at indoctrinating people into believing we need the government's involvement in these areas, but it's just not accurate historically. Um, you know, I would say if what we want is a safe meat industry and by safe, I don't want to play into the hands of those who somehow think we can enjoy a 100% safe anything in this world. Um, you know, I, I always t remind people like getting out of bed in the morning is inherently risky, but, but so is staying in your bed. There's no such thing as a no risk option in a, in a world like the one we live in. Um, and so, you know, but what kind of system would most reduce and minimize risk? Well, it would be a decentralized meat system, a highly competitive system that's decentralized where animals are not being commingled, where, you know, you're not putting 3,000 chickens an hour through a multi-step chlorine bath from chickens that have been raised in their own fecal matter. I would highly recommend that you go and listen to that the rest of that podcast. It is extremely enlightening on a lot of the details by which the outrageous regulations that have been put in place that sound perfectly logical are put in place specifically to keep small business owners down, like the 30-month-old cattle rule. Um, again, you'll have to listen to it to hear about those details and how they actually work in practice to benefit large corporations and strike down small businesses. So I think the point here is an apt one that applies equally today as it did 100 years ago at the time the jungle was published as it did 130 years ago when the first meat inspection laws were being passed, which is that, again, large government is used as a stick by which small business and big business can fight with each other for market share. And they'll try to uh, to, to interfere with the other's business practices by getting the government basically to come in and take a side. It's, it's like going to mummy or daddy and asking them to arbitrate your dispute. It's the exact same thing and it's used in the same way. So um, having said all of this, what can we really take away from the jungle? Um, surely it can't just be that simplistic high school history textbook lesson. Sinclair writes book, book causes stir, government passes laws, all is better. So if it's not that fairy tale version of reality, what can we actually learn from this? One thing that I think we can take away that's highly relevant to the really raison d'etre of this podcast is that books and movies absolutely can have real, tangible, real-world consequences in real life. And uh, another example along this, this path in the same vein would be Oliver Stone's JFK, which led directly to the formation of the Assassination Records Review Board, uh, which sorted through and declassified thousands of new JFK-related documents in the 1990s. And for whatever that ARRB did or did not tell us about the details of JFK's death, it at the very least gave us one very important document, the Operation Northwoods documents, which have become such an important part of our understanding of the history of false flag terrorism. So, um, so that's one example. J JFK uh, Oliver Stone's JFK 
led to the ARRB, which, again, for whatever else it did or did not do, declassified the Operation Northwoods documents. Uh, Sinclair writes The Jungle, which pa- which helped cause the passage of the Meat Inspection Act and the, the Pure Food and, Food and Drug Act. Um, now, of course, there's a big asterisk next to The Jungle case because I, that... As I think we've seen today, there were already corporate interests that were interested in this type of uh, consolidation of control in the hands of uh, inspectors from the government. But at any rate, it did have real-world consequences. It was the uh, the direct impetus for the passage of those acts. So as a little side note, and as a bit of homework for you for this episode, how about if we try to think of other examples direct causal relation examples of the uh, a book or movie some some work of fiction or art that had a direct real real world consequence a tangible measurable quantifiable one so anyway that's one of the lessons that we can learn from the jungle and the second is that it should be noted, at least ironically, that this book was not intended to be an expose of the meatpacking industry at all. It was supposed to be this gl- glorious rallying call for American socialism, and that was specifically what Sinclair had been contracted to do. That was the the actual purpose of this novel. So the over-the-top pathos of this story of Jurgis in the stockyards that out Hardy's Hardy and Thomas Hardy in terms of just the, the, the unbelievable levels of, of pathos that it invokes for its characters uh, was really just a suitably grim situation and context to hang this down-and-out immigrant laborer narrative on so that he could introduce the socialism towards the end of the book. And I don't know if, if anyone actually did read or reread this book in preparation for this podcast. I hope you did. But if you did, you probably did concentrate on the very interesting and gory details of the, the meatpacking and all of that, that, but probably your interest faded towards the end when it started getting into the socialist narrative towards the last few chapters. But to be perfectly fair to Sinclair, I think, uh, I mean, there is some real nonsense, uh, techno-utopian socialist claptrap <laughs> that is in the, the last chapter specifically and with the the, the benevolent uh, government is going to compile a, an entire index of all commodities and labor and, and products in the entire economy and is the technocrats that have descended from the heavens are going to decide exactly how much of everything everyone needs in order to produce the best and blah 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 the usual type of zeitgeist idea that's been around for at, you know a century plus at this point um that's really quite, I mean, well, take it for what it's worth, which is absolutely nothing. But there are some interesting and I think even insightful bits towards the end. For example, in chapter 30, allow me to quote. And then the hotel keeper would go on to show how the socialists had the only real remedy for such evils, how they alone meant business with the beef trust. And when in answer to this, the victim would say that the whole country was getting stirred up that the newspapers were full of denunciations of it and the government taking action against it, Tommy Hines had a knockout blow already. Yes, he would say, all that is true, but what do you suppose is the reason for it? Are you foolish enough to believe that it's done for the public? There are other trusts in the country just as illegal and extortionate as the beef trust. There is the coal trust that freezes the poor in winter, there is the steel trust that doubles the price of every nail in your shoes. There is the oil trust that keeps you from reading at night, 
and why do you suppose it is that all the fury of the press and the government is directed against the beef trust and when to this the victim would reply that there was clamoring up over the oil trust the other would continue Ten years ago Henry D. Lloyd told all the truth about the Standard Oil Company in his Wealth versus Commonwealth, and the book was allowed to die, and you hardly ever hear of it. And now at last two magazines have the courage to tackle Standard Oil again, and what happens? The newspapers ridicule the authors, the churches defend the criminals, and the government does nothing. And now, why is it all so different with the Beef Trust? Here the other would generally admit that he was stuck, and Tommy Hines would explain to him, and it was fun to see his eyes open. If you were a socialist, the hotel keeper would say, you would understand that the power which really governs the United States today is the Railroad Trust. It is the Railroad Trust that runs your state government, wherever you live, and that runs the United States Senate and all of the trusts that I have named are railroad trusts, save only the beef trust. The beef trust has defied the railroads, it is plundering them day by day through the private car, and so the public is roused to fury, and the papers clamor for action, and the government goes on the warpath. And you poor common people watch and applaud the job, and think it's all done for you and never dream that it is really the grand climax of the century-long battle of commercial competition, the final death-grapple between the chiefs of the Beef Trust and Standard Oil for the prize of the mastery and ownership of the United States of America. Now, I think there is some truth in that passage. I think that it's important to note that it isn't just one giant megalithic trust that runs everything. There are competing trusts. And I think it, it, uh, historians of the 19th century, yes, should be looking at the railroad trust and how that was the organizing principle behind which most of the robber, robber barons of the late 19th century either made their fortunes or had to deal with in some way, including Rockefeller and Standard Oil. It was their deal with the, the railroads and some of the underhanded tricks that they used to get their competition out of the way that consolidated that uh, that vertical and horizontal monopoly that Standard Oil managed to, to achieve. So um, the Railroad Trust competing with other trusts in various underhanded ways, that's an interesting narrative that I think deserves a real history. And if anyone knows, I think, of any really good uh, exploration of that, I'd be interested to hear it. So perhaps you can leave that in the show notes. Anyway... So Sinclair, I think, was not completely naive to what was going on here, and that's reflected in his own uh, his own distaste for the regulation and legislation that was passed as a result of his book, and also, of course, in his famous dictum on the novel that I aimed at the public's heart, and by accident I hit it in the stomach. So <laughs> there's a lesson to be learned in there somewhere for would-be, uh, well, would-be novelists and I suppose any artist that wants to transform the world through their art, you have to be careful how you aim it, because the public cannot always be relied on to take out of the, the, the work of art what you put into it, or at least what you intended to put into it. All right, and I guess finally I will sum up this take on the jungle just by saying a bit tongue-in-cheek that you can't always trust what's on the label, whether that's a cut of processed mystery meat from some large uh, beef trust packer in the Chicago stockyards, or an historical narrative tied up in a big bow that's amenable both to big big government and big business. 
And on that note, we'll leave things there for this edition of Film Literature in the New World Order podcast. But as always, before we get onto the what is on the plate for next month, we're going to go and take a look back at the comment section of FLNWO number 34, where we were talking to Sibel Edmonds about Three Days of the Condor. Uh, so, for example, we had... Uh, Jay Conlon, and many others in the comment section noting that this was their favorite movie, or in the case of Jay Conlon, noting that it was Michael Rupert's favorite movie, and noting the interesting subplot, or what is revealed to be the main driver of the plot at the end of the film, the fact that this was all around the planning for a Middle East war, which, as Jay Conlon notes, is, well, highly relevant to the proceeding few decades of geopolitics. Um... Apollo Slater and Mark K.P. discuss in detail some ideas about NewsBud and the direction that it should be taking. And uh, for those of you who don't know, NewsBud is still going. Uh, the original fundraiser did not was not funded uh, was not fully funded, so that one did not go through. And they are doing a second fundraiser right now for, and they're going to do it in stages. And the first stage is going right now, and it's to start with one hundred fifty thousand dollars dollars, which will be used for the first few months and uh, to hire the first few people to to get the site up and going and to start producing content. Uh, by June. Um, so that's, I, I believe, June. So that's that's the plan, and people can find more information about that on newsbud.com and in the Kickstarter specifically. Um, let's move on. Uh, there's a lot of comments talking about, again, Smokey Spam 2000 and others talking about this was my favorite film as a teenager in the 70s, and uh, No Soap Radio, uh, Three Days of the Condor was also my favorite film. <laughs> it seems like Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. Apparently, this is everybody's favorite film, so it's good that we did cover it. Um, Voltaic Dude noting the uh, iconic uh, How Do You Know They'll Print It um, and talking uh, about that. Uh, lots of other comments here talking about how important this movie is and various aspects of it. Uh, we also had uh, Azavit MD Azavit MD uh, noting that I got the DVD at the library and will watch it tonight. I looked for an episode on Eyes Wide Shut but didn't see it. Are you planning to do one? If you do, the person to contact for the show would be a Vigilant Citizen. There's a three article series on that website about hidden and not so hidden meanings in the film. It has an excellent analysis of the film. Uh, thank you for the suggestion. I have done an entire podcast episode specifically on Kubrick. We didn't really talk much about Eyes Wide Shut in that podcast, but I figure I've already talked about uh, Kubrick a, a few times on the podcast, and I don't want to over overdo it. So, I, and Eyes Wide Shut, like The Matrix or some of the other films out there that just seem a little bit too on the button for this podcast and a little bit too obvious. So I have, I mean, I, I agree it's an important film and I think there's a lot to uh, check out there. So maybe we'll put it on the back burner for a future episode, but I want to explore some less obvious examples in this series. Um, and also, as far as I know, Vigilant Citizen doesn't do uh, interviews. I think it's an anonymous person or persons. And as far as I know, has never done an interview with any media outlet. So I, if I'm wrong about that, please do correct me. Um, but I just, I don't, I wouldn't even know how to go about contacting that person or people. Um, but on the note of Eyes Wide Shut, uh, there was an interesting connection made uh, towards the end of the comments by Fosca, who says, um, connecting three dots. One, can a movie be two, more than two hours of entertainment? Two, Sidney Pollock. Three, 
Dennis Hastert, David Hastert, Dennis Hastert, sick. Uh, following the idea that Three Days of the Condor may really con- convey a deeper message, would this ever be allowed by the Matrix? Luckily, I think yes. And here's the connection. Sidney Pollock, the director of Three Days of the Condor, had a role in Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. He, had, he also had closer relation to Kubrick, helping engage uh, Cruz and Kidman. And the role he plays in the movie actually is not part of the original novel by Arthur Schnitz, uh, Schnitzler. After watching Eyes Wide Shut, I cannot deny a disappointment. Uh, still, also was not sure about the meaning. Certainly great filming, etc. Deep psychology of areas beyond comfort zone. But ultimately, all reading about the Hastert case over the last month makes me really think more about another layer this movie does expose. I cannot say if it was Kubrick's intention, but I now see it nothing less than as an insight into the cacistocracy. Yet, as a pr- uh, proof of how... Uh, how powerful a piece of art can be. Uh, QFC James, what is your view on Eyes Wide Shut? (laughs) More specific, why is sexuality so much special in the U.S. that its suppression can lead to big misuse? Well, that's a a very broad question, but I think, I mean, the obvious implication is that sexual blackmail has had an exceptionally powerful um, sway over politics of various sorts, I'm sure, throughout history, but obviously in the American political context over the past century as well. And Dennis Hastert, as we I'm sure all know by now, is really just the the very, very top layer of that onion. And uh, it's a very ugly onion underneath. So there you go. A couple of comments about Eyes Wide Shut uh, there. Also, um, Philip in the comment section notes, uh, may I suggest an alternate URL at Project Gutenberg for the jungle? And he gives the Gutenberg uh, link for the Gutenberg e-text. I generally, I usually provide the Project Gutenberg e-text if it's available for any uh, book that we're uh, discussing. Uh, for this one in particular, you'll note in the show notes for uh, episode 34, I provided a link to a different source this time. It was, a uh, again, a free online version of it, but it was from online-literature.com, which I had never heard of before. So I was really interested specifically for that. I mean, I think, I hope by now everyone knows about Project Gutenberg and knows that many of these classical books are available for free reading online there. So I want to introduce people to other um, sources, you know, just in case. I mean, just in case Gutenberg goes down or whatever else. It's good to know about other resources that are out there. So if people know of other sites like this with complete e-texts um, that are available and searchable and all of that, please let us know. I mean, it's it's a valuable resource. So I will continue to try to provide a variety of links and with the assumption being that you'll always be able to look at Project Gutenberg for any for any book that's out of copyright, obviously. I mean, books, modern books or new books probably will not be there. Um, so anyway, that's that. Uh, and again, thank you to all the participation of everyone in the comments section for uh, episode 34. Again, I'm looking forward to your comments on The Jungle, and I'm very much looking forward to next month's conversation. And in June, we are going to be discussing the poetry of F.R. Scott. Link in the show notes. Talk to you then. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.